You're listening to the Spice Larder podcast, a monthly conversation featuring artisan producers, chefs, bakers, historians, spice experts, and more. I'm your host, Julia Roberts, and I'll be inviting guests to join me to discuss everything from gingerbread and port to food trends, spices, plus culinary and social history. You can subscribe to the Spice Larder podcast via our various media channels or via platforms such as Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts. To sign up to receive our regular updates and alerts, go to our website, gingerandspicefest.co.uk. An extremely warm welcome to episode five of the Spice Larder podcast. So in this episode, we will be featuring the lesser talked about spice, known for its vivid crimson colour and derived from stigma or styles, also known as threads, of the crocus stavius flower. Know what it is yet? You got it. We're talking all about the spice, saffron. During my research into what I have learned is an amazingly versatile spice. I've discovered that not only can saffron be used in both savoury and sweet dishes, but also for health benefits, in cosmetics, and also it can be used as a dye. So saffron's been enjoyed by humans in the British Isles for hundreds of years, and although it's somewhat fallen out of favour in recent history, thanks to two amazingly entrepreneurial businesses, uh, both British, and who we featured on this episode, it's once again gaining in popularity. We also feature a local Shropshire-based cook, Rebecca Jones, from the business My Little Persian Kitchen, who's passionate about Persian cookery, and she tells us all about how to cook with saffron at home. I wanted to find out about saffron's history and heritage in the UK, and so I caught up with Dr Sally Francis, an Oxford-educated botanist who runs the award-winning Norfolk Saffron. Not only does Sally explain why the once popular British saffron market declined, but she also explains how she grew her saffron business from a hobby to a successful commercial enterprise it is today with award-winning range of products. Not only that, Sally tells us how by incorporating traditional farming practices such as traditional hedge laying and sowing nectar-rich wild flower seeds to encourage pollinators, she is contributing to both the sustainability of the local environment and also stewarding an ancient practice which otherwise would be lost. So, Sally, welcome to the Spice Larder podcast. It is absolutely wonderful to have you on as a guest. Um, I'm delighted to be chatting to you all about the amazing Spice Saffron. So, would you be able to start with telling us a little bit about Norfolk Saffron, which is your business? I believe that you, it started out as a hobby um, and now has progressed into an award-winning business. So it would be lovely to hear a little bit about how you started out with this wonderful spice. Well, hello, Julia. Thank you for the invitation to be on your podcast. Um, yeah, Norfolk Saffron began as a hobby, but um, earlier than that, I began as a result of a birthday present, believe it or not, of just 20 saffron plants. That's where the whole business idea came from. And um, I had those um, for a birthday present when I was at university and uh, every year the saffron plants produce a little bit more saffron we, we got a yield in the first year just a teaspoonful of saffron our very first crop um, every year we got a little bit more a little bit more and then um, we thought should we take some to a, a, um, 
what was it a craft she would take them to a craft fair because farmers markets weren't really around then and we took our whole crop which was about nine grams by then we took the whole thing to a, a craft fair in Burnham Market and um, sold like hotcakes all gone in the one session so then we thought well is there a, a business opportunity here because we had um, by then had some expertise in, in making the saffron row which isn't easy and also we've got a family small holding which wasn't really being used for very much and um, coupled with that I was working as a, a freelance consultant on specialist agricultural crops so I had the sort of technical expertise to to make the leap from hobby to, to business and so in 2010 we planted our first batch of corms on our field we weren't able to um, take all the garden ones and, and make them stretch enough to the field so we had to buy 20,000 and they all went in by hand Gosh. yeah <laughs> it was a big job and um, and then that was the the kind of birth of Norfolk Saffron as a business also, I should say that we were supported by the Rural Development Programme for England, RDPE, with a grant to sort of, now we'd proven that there was a market, we'd proven that we could grow saffron to, to move from hobby to business really quickly to, to set it up properly. That was the birth of Norfolk Saffron. Wonderful. And you say sort of there was a proven market, but when you first set out, I suppose you would have had to have tested that market. So um, you grew the saffron and then took it out into the marketplace. But where did you first go and, and where did you find your customers? Um, yes, uh, we, we had a lot of press coverage in the early days because it was such a novel thing to be doing to, to reintroduce saffron. So that created a lot of um, market interest for us. Uh, I approached very chefs in our local area in North Norfolk um, we quickly set up an online shop and also um, by then farmers markets had begun to to start up so we could go to farmers markets and then later on food fairs um, so it's been kind of a, a process of organic growth I, I've expanded it as we've got a bigger market if that makes sense rather than have a huge amount and then nobody to sell it to because it is a difficult thing to, to sell I mean it's a, a luxury product what must have crossed <laughs> your mind is actually does anybody use saffron? Does anybody know how to use it? And do they want to use it? So how did you find people? Or was it sort of part of an education process as you went out and about? Yes, it was a big education process. And um, we had to also educate people about what the difference is between really good quality, fresh, homegrown saffron versus um, kind of mass market not good quality years old saffron which is what a lot of people have been used to using beforehand even people who are quite keen cooks and um i dare i say should know better really we heard at farmers markets was um people were quite surprised that saffron had a smell even because the stuff that they'd been used to using had no aroma left gosh and from your research <laughs> where was this saffron being produced and bought from do you know yeah, um, most of the saffron um, in the world today is grown in Iran. They're responsible for about 98% of production. Um, a lot of that then gets exported to Spain and repackaged in uh, retail sort of uh, little plastic boxes and, and so on. And so Spain is a, a large exporter of saffron, but no longer a large grower of saffron. Um, there's, a, there's quite a lot of um, uh, opacity in the saffron supply chain in that when you see saffron that says produced in Spain, it doesn't actually mean it's been grown in Spain and it could be quite old before it even gets into the, um, into the pot and it has to come to England and go through even more pairs of hands before it gets on the, the shelf. So although Spain used to be the, the world's largest grower about um, 60 years ago, say, 
Iran has overtaken it by a long, long way now. There are still Spanish growers of saffron. They produce some really good quality saffron. It's just that a lot of the mass market, not so good stuff, goes through Spain on, on its way to other markets. Okay, so yeah, that's really interesting. So like a lot of commodities, um, you know, people have been clearly in it for profits, excessive profit, and, and yeah. sadly, quality gets compromised along the way. So actually, with that in mind, it's really therefore um, wonderful to, you know, come across smaller uh, local companies in the United Kingdom that are producing very high quality saffron, such as yourselves. Now, um, it'd be great to talk about the, sort of the botany of the plant, but before we do, um, I just wanted to touch on the fact that saffron used to be very, very popular in the United Kingdom. Um, and probably, um, you'll, I know you, um, you've written a book, I, I've researched and found out you've written a book on saffron, but it had a heyday in the United Kingdom. Um, when was that? And then what happened? And why did sort of all sort of production, why did we become so reliant on importing saffron as a country? Okay, so saffron was first grown in the UK from around 1350, so a long, long time ago. But that would have been very small scale production in, in places like monastery, infirmary gardens. Um, it sort of made the leap into being a field crop in around 1500 and um, became a specialist crop of the um, eastern counties because we have very good soil and weather conditions for saffron. And so saffron was really, really popular and grown on a very large scale, especially in the Tudor period. Um, there's a, a sort of long lost tradition of saffron production on the North Norfolk coastal strip. Um, and that's evidenced by wills that mention saffron grounds and saffron plants and the apparatus to produce and dry saffron. Um, saffron Walden is the, the sort of well-known centre of saffron production, but it wasn't on, the only place. You know, there was an awful lot of saffron in southern Cambridgeshire and um, a lot in North Norfolk as well. So moving on, um, saffron was grown in North Norfolk to such a large extent that it was exported to the Low Countries by ship. So this is, um, you know, big big business and, and the cargoes that went out of North Norfolk were huge. There was um, one with 60 pounds in weight of saffron on just one ship on one voyage. So saffron um, was, that was kind of saffron's heyday in the uh, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Why it all went wrong is because of um, a lot of different factors all working together. So for example, um, one thing was the invention of synthetic dyes and colors. Um, because they're so much cheaper than uh, a, um, a natural dye or colour, that there was a cost factor there. Another thing was the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s, because the price of cereals went really, really high, and cereals are a lot less of a risky crop to grow than saffron, so the, the, um, the profit at the end is much more assured. You know you'll probably get quite a good crop with a cereal, and saffron's much more chancy. So that was another, another problem with um, saffron production. Then you've got other factors like the Industrial Revolution and the, the, um, the movement of people from villages into town life because you need a lot of pairs of hands to, to um, pick and harvest saffron. And the workload is very unpredictable. So sometimes you have to call on lots of people at quite short notice, which you could do if you had a village full of families and, and children's, children. And um, you know, we've, we've seen, um, we've had times when the, the crop has just gone bananas and it's been really really hard to to get it all in so i do appreciate that factor especially other things were um the importation of new flavors into cookery so you know food fashions are not a new thing 
uh, a long time ago when um, cocoa and vanilla were first brought into the UK from the New World, they sort of ousted saffron's role in, in cookery to a large extent. Uh, for example, if you were to cook something like um, a creme brulee, but not put the vanilla in and instead put saffron in, you'd have a different product, but equally nice. It just goes to show that vanilla is sort of taken on a lot of saffron's roles in, in sweet things. And saffron was the flavour to celebrate Easter. A lot of traditional saffron buns were cooked around Easter all over the country, not only in Cornwall. Um, but now we can see that chocolate has taken over our Easter celebrations. You know, you, you would, it would be unthinkable really to have Easter with no chocolate. But if you were alive, say, 300 years ago, it would have been unthinkable to celebrate Easter without making saffron buns. And then the last thing, oh. um, amongst all these different factors, was um, there was a big question mark placed over saffron's health benefits. And that was a slightly sort of chicken and egg situation because they, by, when people began to question saffron's health benefits, by then a lot of not very good quality saffron was being imported. They weren't getting the really fresh, really strong home-produced crop, which then gave, put this question mark over saffron's health benefits, which then meant that the, the UK growers had even less of a market, so there was even more of an, an import um, of, of saffron rather than the homegrown stuff. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with imported saffron per se, but a long time ago, um, the, the sort of supply chain was so long and so slow that there was a, a, even the best saffron wouldn't be so good by the time it got to England. And also countries that produce um, lovely produce like saffron tend to keep the best for themselves and export the lower quality grades. So that was what the, was the sort of death knell for saffron. The last grower that I've come across in my research was in Cambridgeshire and he lasted till around 1816-1818. That's really really fascinating so it's a sort of a real uh, mix of um, issues really as to why it sort of became unpopular um, and actually so it was clearly being used for dye it was being used for culinary use um, and also for health benefits yes. and then you know like with all yes. things and I suppose um, you know, the world's forever changing and, and things do fall in and out of uh, favour, really, in flavour. So, so it's quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, just touching back on that heritage of the spice, when it was in its sort of heyday in the UK, or England probably at the time, um, what were people, so how were people using it in food? You said sort of buns at Easter and things like that. Um, was it being used sort of in a savoury way as well? Yes, um, it, uh, UK cookery then used it in sweet and savoury dishes, which is um, quite unusual. Nowadays, we tend, well, we only have really sweet dishes left, um, various flavoured buns and that kind of thing. But you would find it in sauces and um, also, as well as using the saffron in the food, there was another technique where the saffron was used on the food. And that was a technique of endoring, where you, you sort of glaze your, your product with um, a glaze made of saffron and egg white. And so it becomes golden, which is where the word endor comes from. And so if you were having a really posh feast, for example, you might dish up a, an endored swan still in its feathers. Not the ordinary folk, of course. No, uh, it sounds like that was the sort of aristocracy and, and sort of the royal courts that would have been enjoying that. It was. But, but fasc mm. absolutely fascinating. It's hard to know how ordinary people use saffron, of course, because um, they don't didn't um, leave as a record of cookery books or anything like that. So... I imagine it was used um, in kitchens in all social classes and it wouldn't be expensive if you were somebody who grew your own. You touched on the health benefits. So um, I know that I've read 
that it was used um, or people tried it during the Great Plague um, as a sort of as a healthy uh, as a remedy. Um, but what other sort of health properties were people using it for? Mm. Yes, a, a long time ago, um, saffron was thought of as a as a kind of cure all or tonic for every condition known to man, essentially, and also in veterinary medicine too. Oh, because you think about a tiny bit of saffron able to colour a, a great big volume of liquid, for example, if you were making medicine up, it looks like it's got a lot of power. And I think that was the attraction. And um, we've just finished a, a translation product project for a book called Crocologia, which was um, written in 1671. And is a, a book entirely devoted to the medical benefits of saffron. And it, it sort of runs from head to toe and covers all the bodies, all, all the diseases of the human body. Um, with saffron formally to to treat them so that's a really extreme um viewpoint and that but it just shows how important saffron was in the 17th century in medicine and how highly it was regarded when you get to the the um 18th century a chap called william alexander did a series of experiments which are pretty crude really he just dosed himself with increasing doses of various um drug substances including saffron and uh, he noticed with some substances he made himself quite ill when he had made his increasing series of doses. But with saffron, he didn't make himself ill. So his conclusion was that saffron wasn't a powerful drug. And that was the beginning of the decline of saffron in medicine. It just hung on for a little bit longer as a, a colouring and as a way to disguise the flavour of opium, actually. So you have um, recipes that are loaded with opium, but the flavour of the opium is disguised with a bit of saffron. You have to move a lot, lot further forward and, and really only in the last sort of 15 or 20 years has saffron been the, the subject of proper modern medical research. And that, that's an ongoing process. There's, there's been some really interesting findings. Uh, some are still in, um, in the sort of cell line stage rather than being done on the human body. But just to summarise, saffron has got antidepressant properties. Um, it's got uh, properties which means it's good for your heart health. Um, it's very good for eye health. And so far, it's got a lot of anti-cancer properties that have been proven in cell lines of cancer cell lines in, in dishes, not in the human body, I should say, but they're, pre they're promising preliminary results. So there are proven health benefits for saffron. That's really, really fascinating. And I suppose what will be um, great to know going forward once all the research sort of um, they've done sort of more research will be, you know, what kind of quantities of saffron we need. Um, you know whether it's daily or you know how much because that that's the thing that's always difficult to know and because it's such an expensive um, spice I think people do use it sparingly um, and mm. you know it, it seems like something so special um, and something to use around celebration because of the cost but then again vanilla is expensive and people use that very frequently so um, I suppose what's yeah education comes then maybe we people would be more brave to sort of invest in it yeah i think saffron does come with a bit of um uh, uh i don't know how to how to sort of describe it really but a bit of sort of emotional baggage in a, in a way that i've heard people say they've been given saffron but are too scared to use it because it was expensive and i i think well you were given that you haven't even had to pay for it and and um, you're, you're scared to use it and i think that's unique actually i think you're right when you say that vanilla is expensive but people use it sort of quite freely um, I don't know whether it's because a vanilla pod looks physically bigger than a few saffron threads. Maybe that's the reason. But with really good, strong saffron, the, the amount you have to use is just minuscule to get a whole dish flavoured and coloured with saffron. And I think um, for some people, they're a bit sceptical of that. But when they see it 
um, proven to them, then they're, they're sort of on board. Great. I actually think that I think from a personal perspective as well, it's quite mysterious spice. I don't, you know, it's fallen out of favour. I can guarantee that, mm. you know, anyone I speak to, probably they've never even used it and they don't even really understand uh, yeah. the sort of notes and flavour. So, um, you know, what are the notes okay. of saffron? It's really hard to put it into words, but saffron's got a very floral aroma. Um, for some people, it smells a bit like honey. There's that there's a sort of very honey kind of um, smell to saffron. Other people get licorice, which personally I don't get when I smell saffron. Um, but when I say it's, it's got a sort of honey and a kind of sweetness to it, a honey note with a sweetness to it, it makes it then sound odd to say, well, it goes in paella and things with fish, but it does go with those things really well. There's, um, there's a lot of magic with saffron, really, in the, the flavour. And I think um, if we were a nation that had grown up with the flavour of saffron from, from babies, like perhaps the case is with cinnamon or, or nutmeg, I think saffron wouldn't be such a sort of a foreign tasting thing when we do taste saffron. A Victorian writer said that um, the, the uh, country had lost the taste for saffron and, and a lot of people didn't like it in the Victorian period because they, they'd only tasted it for the first time, perhaps as an adult. Gosh, that's I don't concur with that because we love it. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you find that where you grow saffron, where, where it's grown, does that influence the, um, the flavour and, and the taste at all, like it, you know, it does with grapes and so on? Yes, I'm a firm believer in that because the soil conditions and the weather conditions all influence any crop. Um, our growing conditions are quite unique because we're right on the coast. So we've got the particular soil type there is there and the weather. So we don't get very cold winters, for example. We get mild winters compared with even a few miles inland. And the other thing we get, which is special to the North Norfolk coast, is we get these sea mists that come in often um, with high tide. And in the, the other crops around the area are, are barley, malting barley. And those sea mists have a definite effect on the barley and increase the quality no end. And that's a, a sort of definite, respected, well-acknowledged thing. And I think the saffron must be affected as well. And I think um, we're, we're a long way north compared with most other producers in the world. So the quality of light, the spectral quality of the, the sunlight they get is different from they would get, say, in Iran. And all those factors will have a difference, will have an effect on the saffron and make a difference to the saffron. And our saffron compared with Iranian has got a certain sweetness to it. So it's not only the soil and the weather conditions that affect the saffron uh, and they do have a big effect the other things are how the saffron is harvested and how the saffron's dried and then how it's treated after that clearly your flavor is superb you've won i can see on your website you've won lots of awards the um great taste awards you you're um you've got a food star award as well i see tell us a little bit about that yes. yeah yeah that was a, a government scheme a few years back um they contacted us and um, they made a list of the 50 uh, most innovative UK food businesses. And there was, um, there was us and there was, a, there was another firm in Norfolk as well that were selected. Also, I, I've seen on your website that not only do you sell saffron itself, but also you've got other products. So you've got a saffron flour and some drinks. Do tell us about those. Yes, so um, the, the first thing we, we did is we thought, how can we add value to the saffron and how can we make things that are really unusual that you can't buy in the supermarket? So. That's the whole ethos behind those other products. So um, one of the first ones was to, to try and make some smoked saffron, oak smoked saffron. And, and that was really as a foil to our 
standard saffron, which is dried without any smokiness at all. Um, some kinds of um, Spanish saffron, I mean Spanish grown saffron, are dried over charcoal embers. So the, the um, standard product is a little bit smoky, which means a lot of saffron from that area doesn't really, it goes into savoury dishes. The people that grow it don't really use it in sweet dishes because there's a little bit of smokiness. So we invented the smoked saffron as a deliberate foil to the ordinary natural saffron. And, you know, I, I promised my parents I wouldn't take up smoking, but I have with the, the smoked saffron. And I smoked that myself over oak sawdust. Wow. And uh, that's a lovely product, a uh, lovely product for fish dishes. And um, we had to get the balance right there to not go too heavy on the smokiness so that it kills the saffron flavour. But at the same time, not be too um, wishy-washy with the smoky flavour so you don't get the smokiness. So it took a little bit of um, working out to, to get the balance right. Also, the smoked saffron is really, really good for vegetarian dishes because it's a way of getting smokiness into vegetarian food, which is sometimes a bit hard to do unless you use smoked paprika, perhaps, for example. So that's the smoked saffron. The saffron flower, um, I was contacted by a lady uh, who lives on the outskirts of Norwich and she said, did I make saffron flower? And at that stage, I'd never heard of saffron flower. And she, she described how she, as a younger woman, used to buy it in a particular shop in Norwich in the 50s and 60s. And it was a quite well-known product, saffron flour, um, saffron infused into flour to bake with. And so um, after talking to her for a long time to try and get the gist of what this saffron flour used to be like, um, we developed two kinds of saffron flour, a strong version for making bread with, for um, saffron breads or saffron corn, uh, Cornish saffron cake, and then a self-raising version as well for, for cakes and buns and scones and lovely things like that. The other thing we do is a liqueur. We make a an orange and saffron liqueur which is gin based and rather lovely and uh, that was based on a recipe in my grandmother's cookery book and um, not slavishly based on the recipe I, I had to change quite a few things and um, to do with with that recipe but that's um, that's kind of like the crown jewels of our product our product range really because that had three stars in the great taste awards which is top marks congratulations that's wonderful thank you Yes, and they are connoisseurs on that panel. So that is um, a real accolade. So, <clears throat> Thank you, yeah. Yeah, so um, there's lots of different, um, apart from the saffron, there's lots of other little um, products to taste, which is, is great. I think what strikes me as really interesting about the whole, about your business and saffron itself is that it's a, real, a really great sustainable alternative um, to other spices. You know, we mentioned chocolate cacao and, and vanilla and you know how common and widespread they are and how different you know that is to sort of you know hundreds of years ago when saffron was was so widespread but actually if people were to sort of experiment and try with saffron today they would be not only supporting a british company and, and british growers um, but also it's less air miles you know it, it, it's a much more sustainable approach Yes, it is. I mean, there are no air miles at all with our saffron. And um, we're very keen to look after the environment and, and especially to look after the soil. That's my sort of biggest asset, if you like, really, the soil that the saffron is grown on. And it's a lovely thing from the social point of view as well, because in it, the fact that the saffron business is a, a profitable, thriving business means we can maintain a very small, a tiny family farm, actually, which, well, pretty much over the rest of the UK are now gone. Those tiny, tiny family farms are now all brought up by bigger farmers or just used as pony paddocks. So this, um, this sustains us and um, it's a wonderful thing because the children are involved in it as well so they can see um, 
how the, the plant has grown and, and understand how people earn money when they're grown-ups and, and those kind of things. But also the profits from the saffron, part of those are reinvested into some environmental work that we do as well, which wouldn't be possible without the profits from the saffron coming in. So, for example, we had um, a really big piece of hedge laid by a professional hedge layer. And that was a, a lovely project and um, took a chap a week to do. And uh, it makes the hedge really thick. It, it maintains a rural skill because he's, he then has work from us. Um, and uh, it's really good for, for encouraging birds to nest in the hedge and so on and so forth. Also, we sow um, pollen and nectar mix on the small holding as well. And that's not a cash crop at all. That's just um, a lovely mixture of, of flowers, wildflowers and, and crop plants that produce a lot of pollen and a lot of nectar. And the idea there is to look after bumblebees and other pollinators. And they're, they're having quite a hard time at the moment. So that's a thing that we do with, um, you know, with, with pleasure, really, because it's such a lovely thing to see and that the pollen and nectar mix is absolutely full of bees on a nice sunny day and the flowers are just coming into into flower now actually so we can do these extra things which is a, a lovely thing um in terms of soil um soil science is a very sort of unloved aspect of of um science if you like when i was an undergraduate they were just closing down the soil science um course really all the soil science expertise and that was um quite a few years ago now recently there's been more of an interest in soil science but unless the soil's looked after properly you know there's no long-term potential of growing crops in that soil so what we do is um we use farmyard manure um it's really good at building up soil organic matter and also helping um, earthworms and so on and then we use um, very lightweight machinery uh, which means there's no compaction on there and uh, it all it all helps the crop and all also keeps the soil in good heart for future use and future generations to use it and do you find that by keeping such um, a rich and organic soil that you're, um, you manage to keep any sort of pests or, or weeds or anything that might get in the way of the production, is that sort of kept under control by the organic system? No, sadly not. No, um, the biggest pests we have are um, muntjac deer and they're not kept under control by anything. So we, we had to fence around the whole small holding um two years ago now that was one of my most expensive projects for the, the business to just fence them out because the numbers are very high and they they eat everything and anything and they they love um anything of value they tend to make a beeline for and anything of um interest as well so not only saffron but things like bee orchids as well get decapitated by by muntjac so no the the way we we grow the crop doesn't really have any effect on the pests and that's the major pest for us um, weeds wise um, I, I don't spray for any weeds I, I control weeds the old-fashioned way with a hoe or with a tractor hoe and we've got some quite unusual weeds if you want to call them weeds or the other thing to call them would be arable wildflowers <laughs> and uh, we've got some quite unusual ones at the small holding um, we've got the, the blue version of scarlet pimpernel which is a, a bit of an odd one uh, we've got another one called Venus's looking glass which is an unusual one and I can make alterations to the way I grow the saffron so that they can flower and set seed. They don't really have an impact on the saffron yield at all because they don't um, compete with it because they, they both grow at different times of the year. But we can do little things like that because the, the whole operation is small and everything is um, sort of, it's easy to keep track of every little tiny, tiny detail because it's, it's a small operation. Manageable. And, uh, I did, manageable, yeah. yeah. Um, I did wonder in the early days, of the business whether we should expand and have a bigger area and we decided not to and I'm really pleased we did because we can now carry on focusing on the 
on the quality and not compromise that for the saffron, but also really look after the, the land we've got really, really well at every level in, in the most tiny details that perhaps would get overlooked in a, in a bigger place. There are three grades of saffron quality and it's an ISO international standards system that, um, that is used worldwide. And it's based on a laboratory measurement of the, the substances that give the colour, the flavour and the aroma to the saffron. So the higher those levels are, the stronger your saffron is gram for gram. And that means with really strong saffron, you just need a tiny amount. Whereas with a weak saffron, you need a lot, lot more to get the same saffron punch, if you like. So um, the system's called ISO 3632. But without getting too technical, the difference between grade one, which is the top grade, and grade three, or even ungraded stuff, which is a kind of black box near no one knows how strong or weak that is. The difference is um, two or three times in strength. So when people look at the price of saffron per gram, it's really important to know what grade that saffron is because if it's very weak saffron, you're gonna to have to use the whole gram. Whereas if it was much stronger, you'd use a fraction of a gram. And to give you an example, two examples really, putting that into practice. When we first started to grow saffron, um, we hadn't knowingly tasted it before. So the very first kind of forays into saffron cookery we made, we found they were way too strong, really powerful, and um, actually not that pleasant to eat because with our saffron, being strong saffron, um, we didn't realise in those early days that we needed so much less than the recipe said. And and I, I see that all the time where I see published recipes online that call for one gram of saffron to, to sort of serve four. And it's ridiculous because with strong saffron, you need a fraction of that amount. You really would. And if you use one gram of Norfolk saffron, the thing would be so, so strong, strongly flavoured with saffron, you wouldn't be able to eat it. So um, I found a recipe recently for saffron biscotti and, uh, that wanted two grams to make one batch of about 35. And when we made ours, we used, um, what would it be now? It's 0.1 of a gram. So it's so much less point, than 20 point times one less of a gram. the same color and flavor. 0.1 of a gram versus two grams. Gosh. So the important thing folks is to look out for the, look out for graded saffron. And if it isn't graded, then you know you, you don't know what strength it is or how much to use. And when you find a brand that you like, keep with that because then you'll get an idea of how much to use each time you cook a particular dish and you'll get consistency. There's so much weak saffron around. When you see recipes that are asking for one or two grams of saffron, that it puts people off buying the good saffron because people don't appreciate the difference in, in quality and strength. And I totally understand that because you know we can't produce saffron at a price that the imports come in at because we just you know, our, our hourly rates are higher in this country and, and you know, I, I do treat everyone who works with me really fairly and, and um, you know, there's a, there's a cost factor because there's so much work to produce saffron. Um, and I think it should be a legal requirement to put the grade on the packaging because that, that would give people the choice of buying weaker, cheaper saffron or stronger, more expensive saffron. Well, I think there's a, there's a very strong movement now um, amongst... Um, you know the population to want to support uh, local producers, British producers, and also high quality produce. I mean, I certainly we see this with meat. You know, um, locally in Shropshire, we a lot of uh, the community will support um, the local butcher, so they know where the animals being reared. It's yes, it's more expensive, uh, but it's more ethical. It, it's been reared in a much better way, and. Um, you know, people, a lot of people are moving away from supermarkets and, you know, they want to find businesses like yourself that aren't always easy to find because 
let's face it, the smaller businesses do not have the marketing spend or the sort of... No, we have the shelf marketing budget. No, but but there is a huge movement and we have lots of a really great community of spice lovers that are looking for exactly the kind of product and consistency and quality that you're selling. So it's been really great to have you on the uh, podcast and, you know, you have such a wealth of knowledge and information and we could... We could talk to you for hours on it. We you could go for hours. I know. So um, if somebody now wants to go and buy either your saffron, the flower, or the, the lovely um, liqueur drink you mentioned, where can they find you, Sally? Okay, we're at www.norfolksaffron.co.uk. And um, we, we do mail order all over the country and, and um, overseas as well. And we'd really appreciate the business, especially in these sort of difficult times we find ourselves in now. Um, I'm not alone in saying that you know wholesale markets aren't there anymore and food fairs are cancelled. So um, we've, we're a mail order only business at the moment. Yes, well, we really encourage everybody listening today or you know listening because our podcast is published and people can listen to it whenever. So anyone listening, go and check out NorfolkSaffron.co.uk and do support Sally. She's got such an, a wonderful award-winning business. And thank you so so much for all your time today, your knowledge and expertise. And we will keep in touch with you, Sally. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I really love chatting with Dr. Sally Francis. Not only is she an absolute expert about saffron and its versatility, but also passionate about the sustainability of our planet. I think it's vital that we support enterprising businesses who are literally putting life back into our rural communities. So do check out her website, Norfolk Saffron. After watching an episode of Countryfile a year or so ago, I discovered there was an award-winning British saffron grower just over the Shropshire border in the bordering county of Cheshire. I was keen to find out how well the Cheshire soil lends itself to saffron yields and so it was with great pleasure that I caught up with Pete from the Cheshire Saffron Company. Thanks for the uh, invite. So basically we're uh, the Cheshire Saffron Company and we're, um, there's basically myself, uh, Peter and my brother Douglas and we've been doing this since 2015. So we grow, uh, we've got a three acre plot of saffron up in the, in Delamere Forest uh, up on the Sandstone Ridge. And we've been growing there since 2015, but we've been sort of uh, playing about with it since about 2013, where we've sort of been playing about with how you grow it, what it likes, what it doesn't like, um, and working out how to, how to grow it optimally. Um, and we're now sort of, we've got, over a million plants in a field um, which produce anything sort of from about a kilo upwards uh, in terms of saffron per year. So it's quite, quite, quite uh, laborious as well. We have to uh, do it all by hand. So we have to crawl along on our hands and knees to pick the saffron and then take the strands out uh, by hand. And is it just the three of you that do that or do you actually bring in others at the right time when you have to harvest? Yeah, so we, we basically, we judge it as we're going along. So what we normally do is, because it starts off slow and then it ramps up, up very quickly, gets uh, really out of hand at one stage and then it goes down again to, to manageable levels again. So what we normally do is we start off with just me and my brother 
and my dad helping out and then my mum helps out doing the processing bit at home. Um, and then and then when it gets, starts to get out of hand, we then uh, bring in uh, local worker workers um, from around our area so we can have anything up to sort of 10 people helping us out when it gets really, uh, really busy. Wow. That's, uh, so it sounds like a great family affair with um, extra hands involved. But tell me, um, saffron is an amazing spice, but why saffron? Why, why did you all suddenly just start, you know, deciding um, to be so passionate about this spice? Uh, so it, it basically it, it comes sort of back to my, my passion in plant biology. So um, about 2013, me and my dad were, were playing about with growing different things. So I've grown things such as ginger, lemongrass, um, things like that. And uh, we started trying to grow saffron, failed miserably the first, first year, mainly because the, the bulbs or the corn that we bought in weren't very good, but we didn't know what we were doing. So it, that, that failed miserably. And then the next year we, we bought some proper, proper corn, proper bulbs from a, from a Dutch grower, started growing it. And we just fell in love with the flower, really. The, 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 the smell you get when you're growing the, these plants, the, the honey kind of floral smells that you get when you're doing all the harvesting and the processing, it, it just, you kind of fall in love with it a little bit. Fantastic. Um, and actually painting a lovely picture about sort of meadows of um, crocus, actually the Latin name I've forgotten, but it is. Crocus sativus. That's it. Um, and. I can just sort of got this beautiful image of, of, of meadows of crocus. But they must attract insects for pollinating. Is there a particular insect that's attracted to this particular plant? Yeah, so these plants are actually sterile, so they don't produce seed. So they, they reproduce underground, so they don't technically need insects for pollination. But uh, when you're doing, when the flowers are coming up and they're appearing, the bees really fall in love with them. So you you're going along picking the flowers but at the same time you're trying to you're trying to avoid all the bees that are basically sitting in the flowers and and, and getting drunk on on, on the uh, the pollen and the nectar that's in the flower so they, they seem to love it i could imagine and i wonder if there must be um people who have beehives near um crocus these crocus being grown do you know of anyone that's doing that because that would be a really interesting product yeah so we, where we're based, we actually have, there's some people that have actually got beehives across the road. Oh, um, so they must be, they must be basically benefiting from our saffron flowers across the way. We've had a couple of people in the past that have asked to uh, put beehives on, on the field. So we think probably this year we might, might go ahead and, uh, and get some people to put some on there and see, see what type of, uh, beautiful honey it produces i was going to say have you tried any saffron infused honey at all so i've tried saffron infused honey so that does taste um it, it, i mean it goes really well with, uh, with honey uh, saffron it is one it's one of the the things that if you pair it with something dried fruits and honey are, is a perfect kind of um pairing so uh, i've tried saffron honey and it's, it's got a beautiful sort of metallic metallic floral taste so it is, is a nice way of having it great so it sounds sounds really interesting so in terms of your business the cheshire saffron company um you established sort of a few years ago do is it just the saffron that you're selling or do you have any other products that that are on there 
Yeah, so we do just sell saffron at the moment. So we've looked at in the past, um, we, we were thinking about doing a tea, uh, saffron tea blend, uh, which is something we were still um, considering at the moment. Um, but the next thing we're kind of going to start looking at is sort of more skin. Uh, saffron is very good for the skin. Um, oh, right. so skin sort of um, oils and sort of creams and things like that is the next thing we're going to be looking at. That's really fascinating. Why particularly is it good for the skin? What properties does the plant hold? Um, so it's got, it's got um, sort of healing benefits to it. So it, it's very good at sort of, uh, sort of reducing blemishes of the skin. And it's, got, it's very high in sort of antioxidants. And obviously antioxidants and skin are two things that are sort of uh, well, well paired. Um, so that's sort of the, uh, the background to it, why, why it sort of works really well. It gives you a nice sort of... Uh, sort of glow, nice glow to the skin if you use saffron in sort of milks and things like that and start putting it on your skin and things. So wow, it sounds good. very, very exotic. <clears throat> I mean, clearly it sounds like you have, you and your family have really fallen in love with saffron and are very passionate about it. It's so wonderful to catch up with you because we have been focusing on saffron as the spice of the month for May. Um, and it's a really interesting spice. So it's probably one of the most expensive spices right now in the world with the exception of possibly vanilla I think um, and I'm presuming that the cost really is because of the processing is that right yeah it is um, so I mean to, to, to basically uh, pick it and process it uh, you're talking about a gram an hour a gram of saffron requires about an hour of labor so when you look at it like that and you look at it in terms of UK kind of costs for, for a salary, you can then sort of kind of work out how much it kind of costs just for the labour. You know, it's not adding on the other bits sort of, you know, fertilising your crop and all those type of uh, costs as well. Saffron tends to be the spice that people, I feel, people are most confused about, don't really know how to use it or understand yeah. its flavours. So... Do you think really you guys and your company have still got a place now in sort of educating people about saffron and, you know, how it can be used, its health properties, its benefits? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a place for that. I mean, the, the most frustrating thing with it is because there's a, a huge level of adulteration in the saffron market, there's no regulations. So if you went to a supermarket and bought saffron, you don't really know what you're buying. If you look at the... Um, the back of the packet it says mixed origins and things like that because they don't really know what they're buying either. So I think the majority of the times when people have saffron, they don't, they're not really tasting proper saffron. It, 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 it's old stuff. It's come from different places. It may be even mixed with other things. So um, it's quite frustrating in that respect in that when people think about saffron, they think about that horrible stuff that they might have bought from some <laughs> random place that isn't actually even saffron. You know, it's something else. So there was a lot of education uh, that, that was required there. But it's not just about general public. It's also about the chefs as well. So the chefs don't generally use it. Um, some chefs do and some chefs will be brave enough to use it and maybe experiment with it. But a lot of people, they, they don't really know what to do with it. That's really fascinating. And actually, we have just interviewed um, a cook, uh, Rebecca, from the Little Persian Kitchen, and she is very brave for saffron and adores it. And so listeners can 
hook into that. But um, we, I haven't really spoken to many other chefs about saffron and perhaps that's another sort of podcast or we can get a discussion going yeah. and seeing how people can trial it because, you know, I, I, personally I've never really cooked with saffron. I've always been intrigued by it, but just sort of, no, it just got a little bit forgotten so um it's really fascinating to be opening up the conversation and actually what you're saying about transparency of spices and particularly saffron is really important and i think you know knowing that it's where it's being grown how it's being grown um via you know your company surely is, is a really great start for consumers and chefs yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, by buying UK saffron, you, you've got the traceability there. Yeah. You know where it's being grown, who's growing it, what year it was produced, and what's in it, really. Sure, you know? sure. Um, um, presumably there is an industry in the UK, there's, a, there's an industry standard and body for sort of how you produce and what you produce to. So exactly consumers can know exactly what they're getting, and there's a trust, a, a big trust factor. Um, but so the question that springs to mind is, if it isn't grown in the UK so much, what, why is, are the climates better in sort of hotter countries where, you know, we think of Iran, don't we, um, mm. Saffron and the Middle East? You know, is it diff more difficult to grow it in the British climates? Do you have to sort of um, use any other equipment? So not really, no. So Saffron itself is actually a very robust plant. Um, the things it requires to have a successful harvest is it needs plenty of water in spring, which is when it's doubling up and multiplying under the ground. So it needs that water to double and multiply and produce the corn for the next year. Um, and then it needs a warmish summer. So, um, so at least a month's spell of warm weather. Um, but it doesn't have to be ridiculously warm, just, you know, warm enough. So if we have a bad summer, then it, it does hit our, our, our yields. But there's no reason why you couldn't grow it in this country and there's no reason why it couldn't be as good as in sort of these hotter countries. Uh, and in fact, when you're doing the harvesting, the hotter countries make it more difficult because the flowers wilt very quickly. Whereas in this country, because of the cooler climate in the, in the autumn, it makes harvesting a lot easier because you haven't got that time frame on it where you have to harvest them as quickly as possible before they end up wilting and dying. And would it be something that the average person could grow at home easily? You know, if they wanted, say somebody wanted a, a tiny bit of saffron for, um, you know, their own kitchen, is it something someone could easily try? Yeah, I mean, you can. So there's no reason why you couldn't sort of grow some in your back garden. Um, little pots. So as long as you can, you know, you grow them at a certain depth in the soil, um, then you can put them in pots. The only issue with it is you need, um, you know, 150 flowers for a gram of saffron and not every corm every year will produce a flower. Sometimes they might produce one, sometimes they might produce two, but other times they might not even produce any. So you've got that issue there where you might grow it and you might get a few strands, so it depends how much you want to use in your cooking. So it's definitely something for the very sort of patient, avid gardener, I think, not just for, yeah. you know, the sort of um, cook or, or sort of passionate chef who needs it quickly. And it sounds yeah. like your company's the place to come to. So you, do you sell it in different quantities? And um... Yeah, so we, we, we sell it in 0.2 grams, 
0.5 grams and one gram uh, amounts. Uh, we also sell in higher volume depending on if it's sort of chefs and things. Um, so for chefs, we can sell it up to sort of like 10 gram amounts uh, depending on what they want. Sure. And how long does saffron actually last for? So if you process it properly, so dry it down properly um, and store it in, a, in an airtight container in the dark, in sort of room temperature, non-humid area, then you can, it, it, it'll store for years. Um, we basically put a two-year expiry on our, on our product, but that's just because we have to put some sort of date on there. But it will last for years as long as you store it properly. So it sounds like um, the conditions for storage are, are like most spices, really, which is somewhere dry and um, and dark. So, well, that, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to hear. And what I'd love to hear from you, actually, is if you could share with us your favourite or a couple of your favourite uh, recipes, including saffron. So is there, you, is there a sort of ideal marriage partner for the saffron that you choose or does it go lots of things so it you can actually use it in lots of different things um one of my favorites is just a, a simple lamb tagine um, because it goes really well with the lamb and it goes really well with sort of like your dried apricots that you're putting in there as well so that that's really nice um i also like it with scallops so you can do sort of like a honey uh, saffron glazed scallop so that one is particularly nice. Um, just in rice dishes, sort of like your paellas and things like that, it goes really well. Um, the um, one way I, I, I quite like it is within in my sort of um, vodka or gin with a bit of lime. So that's oh. another nice way of using it because it infuses really quickly in your alcohol. You've that's... got this fluorescent coloured uh, alcohol, which is, is really nice to drink. It sounds like it'd be gorgeous on a summer's summer's evening, a, da a downer with them. Um, yeah, sundowner with saffron uh, <laughs> infused sundowner sounds gorgeous. So yeah. it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you about saffron. It's been really educational. So if somebody wants to get hold of your saffron, where do they go to? So if they go to www.cheshiresaffron.co.uk, um, and then if they go on there, there's um, the Basically, you can buy it off, on the, online there. It goes via PayPal, but there's also a card option on there as well to, to buy it via card option. And you can buy it throughout the whole year, I take it? Throughout the whole year, yeah, yeah. So we're open even now with the, the, you know, all the things going on now. If you want to order saffron, uh, it'll be in the post the next day for you. And for chefs um, who want to perhaps buy a little bit more, have another conversation, can they email you or...? Yeah, so if they, they can either email us, they could either get us on Instagram, on Twitter, um, on Facebook. Um, yeah, many different ways of, of contacting us or even give me a phone call and I'll pick up the phone. So it's another way. It was fantastic chatting with Pete and I particularly loved his recommendation about pairing saffron with scallops. One dish I will certainly be trying at home. Cooking with saffron can be daunting for many and it's hard to know where to start. That's why I invited Rebecca Jones from My Little Persian Kitchen onto the Spice Larder podcast to give us her top tips on how to use the spice and with which foods it works best. 
In this inspiring, honest interview, Rebecca tells us how her yearning for connecting through Persian cookery has been the catalyst for creating a collection of recipes, a successful and regular supper club, and even publishing her very first Persian cookery book. So I started about three years ago. Um, I'm half Persian, my dad's Persian and um, my mum's English and I grew up in a household where food was really important. So kind of all of our social interactions, our family gatherings all revolved around a meal and I used to watch um, my parents and my aunt and uncle cook and help them out from probably three years old. Um, so it was something I've always loved doing. Uh, about three years ago, I started an Instagram account and just started taking pictures of the food that I was taking and I was making and all of a sudden it kind of took off. I I started getting quite a few followers and a lot of interactions so I had some real kind of stalwart followers that would um, private message me, ask me for the recipes for what I'd put on and I got to thinking actually I could open a blog and, and start it. And my husband suggested it when we were on holiday in Spain. And he said, why don't you do it? So we were kind of, we sat with a glass of wine and, and um, discussing it. And I'd had a particular um, kind of successful post that day. So he said, why don't you start a blog and just get your thoughts down and see if it goes anywhere. Um, and I suffer from complex PTSD and anxiety. So it was a really good way I found when I started it was amazing to be able to channel something um, negative and turn it into something really positive. So I just started writing. And then when I couldn't sleep, I would get up and write and I would cook. So I'd be baking all hours of the morning and it really, really helped. Um, so I started this blog and within six months I had over 20,000 individual views and my Instagram and social media kind of took off a bit. And I thought, all right, you know, I, probably could do something with this um, and like I said you know my store followers are still the same same guys that still follow me now so I just pulled everything together into a recipe book um, and I thought oh, I'll just leave that I'm not going to do anything with it it's just for my own sake and I left that about a year year and a half and, and didn't do I just kind of played around with the pictures I'm a bit of a perfectionist so I thought well it's not going to be good enough I'll just kind of keep it to myself um, and I did and we went on holiday again and we were sat chatting as we do with a glass of wine it tends to be the only time myself and my husband actually see each other because we've got busy jobs um is when we're on holiday and i thought i you know i love cooking i do lots of dinner parties at home maybe i could cook for people i don't know um that don't have to say they like it because they're um afraid of offending me (laughs) so i i contacted um Alderford Lake, which is in Whitchurch. I sent them an email and said, I don't suppose you'd be interested in supporting me and running, letting me run a supper club at your venue. They came back and said, yeah, contact Rob, he's the owner, um, and see, see what he says. So I did, and when I got back from holiday, I took my MacBook, took a few recipes along with me, sat down with Rob and said, you know, this is what I'd like to do, this is my kind of vision. Um, but my reservation is Persian food isn't kind of you know, pretty little portions on plates. My life mission is to make the brown stuff look pretty, <laughs> which, is, which is really tough. 
And he said, well, don't then. How would you normally cook? And I said, well, I, I cook as a family. You know, I like, I create that family environment and that's what I really enjoy. And he said, well, that's what you do then. He said, just create your food, put it in big pots in the middle of the table like you do at home, get people sitting next to each other they don't know and do that as something different. So I did. I put it out there and I sold out um, within the first week. And it's kind of gone from there. Some of my original supper club guests are still coming. I've got a waiting list now for future ones. So it, it just kind of took off. That's a really amazing story to hear. So it sounds like something that was your initially your passion has then become um, an incredible journey, which sounds like it's been quite therapeutic as well along the way. Um, and through that has made you and others really connect. So, and I think that brings it really nicely back to family because there seems to be, you know, sharing food in the family is all about connection. And it sounds like My Little Persian Kitchen has grown its own family. Um, yes. Yeah, how wonderful. That's great. And so, well, it's an, an amazing journey. And um, just for those who may not be, um, who, who may not know about the Spice Lodge, we actually are located, sort of grown out of a festival in Shropshire. So Alderford Lake is in Shropshire. It's a beautiful venue um, and absolutely perfect for a little pop-up supper club. And are there any other venues that you go to in the area or wider? Yeah, my next supper club is actually going to be at Ginger and Pickles in Mantwich. Lovely. It was supposed to be a few weeks ago, um, but unfortunately under the, under the current health crisis, we had to cancel oh. it and we've rearranged it for June. Great. And um, so I have a few four of those this year at ginger and pickles assuming and um, we come out of this um sure i mean this is a really um just touch on slightly this is a great part of the country because we are located just on three county borders here we're, we're north shropshire market drayton whitchurch area but then just a few miles away is cheshire and then we've also just tip into uh, north staffordshire here in market drayton so we have a really great reach um and there's lots of it's it's a really sort of it's a very rural county north shropshire and there's a lot of um farming that goes on and but yet there's the sort of cities nearby and sort of metropolitan um types who like to come and and check out uh, new places so i think it's a great place to be located to start a business um and certainly a pop-up as well i was really surprised actually i kind of at first because there isn't anything like this in Shropshire there isn't any, there aren't any Persian restaurants there isn't any kind of um, Persian pop-up scene or or anything like that I didn't know how it would go and I've just been completely blown away by the responses I've had the interaction I've had the guests that come back time and time again that they're like family now and the first one I can remember I was in tears because I have never cooked for 40 people before, and I do everything on my own. Um, I don't have a sous chef, I don't have any kitchen staff. I cook everything from scratch on my own in the kitchen. I came out and did a little tour, because I do all my supper clubs, and I talk about the spices, I run through the menu, I talk about how I came up with the dishes, um, and then I go away and I cook for them. And I can remember halfway through one of the, my first one, I looked out of the, there's like a viewing window at Alderford Lake, and I looked out and I saw people sharing my food, passing it up and down the table, laughing, having conversation, and it just made me 
just I was just so overwhelmed that actually something that I really dreamed about happening was happening and it was me that had brought those people together and my food and that just felt wonderful absolutely amazing and then I just kept having them my guests kept emailing me saying can you you know have you got the book coming out is there anything you're doing with it so I thought well it was last Christmas I thought I'll send it off to a few publishers and see what I get and in February, I had an offer. <laughs> so Fantastic. It, 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 was, it was quite a surprise, but it was just, it was lovely. Absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. So um, I may as well ask right now, when is the book due to be out? It was due to be out um, a few weeks ago. Um, obviously, due to the, the current climate, that's been delayed. I anticipate it being out mid-July. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. And we very much look forward to, to seeing that and sharing it with our community. Um, so let's just talk now a little bit about spices. So Persian food is famous for spices, but it might be nice for you to sort of set the scene and tell us really sort of the essence of Persian food, how you describe it in a nutshell. I presume that's going to be a little bit hard to do. But for anyone who's never tried Persian food or knows nothing about it, how would you sort of entice them into trying it? What would you say? So Persian food for me is very familial. Uh, it is all about your social gathering and your interaction. Um, like I said, it's not defined by beautiful plates of small portions. Persian food is huge big pots of hearty food with loads of flavour that have been lovingly created for three days or more. So we use very delicate spices and fragrances um, in Persian food. And due to that, it takes a long time. So I always say to all of my supper club guests, the secret ingredient in all of my recipes is time. I um, Persian stews are called horests, um, whereas in Morocco they're tagines. Um, so a horash that I do for the supper club, I can't cook it on the day and serve it because that will not have given the flavours enough time to um, mature and take on what, what the essence of the dish is. So they're very warming dishes. They're very hearty. Um, they're more on the floral and um, kind of warm, deep flavours than they are spice in terms of the heat. There isn't a huge amount of heat in Persian cooking. I add a lot of it into my own food and my own recipes, and I've kind of taken traditional recipes from my family and added that heat element because I really enjoy that. Um, you would tend to find, they always say that you'll find the best Persian food and you'll eat the best Persian food in a Persian woman's house because it takes that long to, to cook it that you can't you know, effectively do it in a restaurant. And... Um, when you do go to, if you've got Persian friends or family, when you do go, they always say, my family always joke and say, the more we like you, the more dishes there are on the table. <laughs> you can't get to my dad's house or my uncle's and aunt's house without having five or six different choices on the table at any one, any one point. And I like to fill your plates. You can always count on second helpings. There is never, an, you never leave there thinking, oh, I'm hungry still. <laughs> So um, hospitality is clearly a key element to the Persian experience. So it's not just, and actually for me, this really sort of encapsulates um, sort of what I love best about the whole experience of dining out, which is, it's not just about food. It's for me, it should be an optimum, holistic experience of everything coming together to form the perfect sort of marriage for, you know, 
hospitality and love and connection and joy and celebration. And, and actually, I personally, I find that quite a lot of chefs get that wrong and they just focus solely on the food and how it looks on the plate. And for me, it's about the whole experience. And it sounds very much that your supper clubs are about that. I've, I'm signing up right now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so um, it sounds like, you know, you've touched on delicate flavours in Persian food. Um, mm -hmm. That sort of makes me think of, I know, I don't know much about Persian food, but I know uh, that rose is quite often included. Um, and obviously saffron as well, which has been the spice of the month um, for May. So we probably, you know, it would be good to talk about a few of the sort of more delicate spices that may be used and also a little bit about saffron because we'd love to hear a bit more about it um sort of you know its heritage perhaps and and how you do use it in the food that would be really interesting okay well like you said we do use a lot of rose i particularly do i really like the flavor and i think it's so versatile you can use it in sweet and savory um you can use the rose petals you can use the water which is essentially just the distilled um petals when you've um, boiled them we use orange blossom water, um, and I use that a lot in my cakes, in my creams, in my pastries. Um, cardamom, uh, that's a really good flavor to use, and I think people are scared of cardamom because of if you, a lot of the way, when you experience it out in a typical restaurant, they will put the whole cardamom pod in, and then if you get that, if you've ever bitten into one and you get that awful flavor running through you, well, it just hasn't been used in the right way and I think um, people can be quite um, reticent to use spices because they're a little bit afraid of them but cardamom's beautiful if it's used correctly it's really warm turmeric um, is a spice that we use in a lot of our horashs um, in, in our stews that's always kind of the baseline um, if you like um, flavour that goes in and we always fry that off first before we add any meat in because it takes away the bitterness of, of the um, actual spice itself and then the saffron so saffron is probably i would say the most important um spice in, in persian cooking it's the most delicate it's also um, the most valuable and it needs and deserves to be handled with the utmost respect because of the way it's grown and harvested um, it isn't something that's done kind of quickly and overnight. And do you use any specific saffron? I do. So I only use Persian saffron. Uh, I only use Iranian saffron. And the reason for that is because it's the, the, some of the best saffron in the world comes from Iran. And the reason for that is because the soil is really rich in Iran. There's very little rainfall. Um, so the way that the, the country actually gets a lot, the, the soil gets its richness is from underwater aqueducts, uh, underground aqueducts that provide the country, the homes and the farms with over 70% of their water sources. So the saffron there has a mixture of the really rich soil, the underwater, the underground filtration system and then the beautiful weather so the saffron that you get from iran is a really deep mahogany color wow. you don't have any flecks of yellow or orange um, whereas you do the saffron that you buy in the supermarkets or you can buy in other countries you have a lot of yellow running through it but iranian saffron is a pure deep red and the, the flavor you get out of that is unlike anything else 
And I do demos at my supper clubs on how to use it, but I also do a demo between, this is Iranian saffron, and this is a saffron I bought from one of the leading supermarkets. That's interesting. So tell me, um, because it's quite difficult to um, put into words the sort of scent or flavour of saffron. How would you describe it and how does it compare to anything else? So if, for example, someone hasn't tried it, what, how would you describe it to them? Saffron has kind, it's a really, I would say it's delicate on, on your palate. It is really delicate. It's a mixture of being quite floral and it has a sweetness a kind of sweet resinous flavor to it i would say and the beautiful thing about this spice is that it's it is so versatile when used correctly you can use it in sweet you can use it in savory you can use it in drinks i've got a particular saffron gin that i like <laughs> there is no kind of end to it you can use it in um water you can use it in tea so you can do pretty much anything with it and it, it just works and it makes anything feel a little bit more decadent. I think that's probably the right, the right word for it. So it's sort of adding a bit of luxury to, um, to food really, I suppose. And, and um, well, the flavour is delicious. Uh, interestingly, we're, we're currently um, in the lockdown at the moment because of COVID-19. If somebody was to make some Persian food today and, and they had to use whatever was in their cupboard and there wasn't any saffron, what would you suggest that they sort of put in its place or used instead of? Or, or is, that, is that impossible? To be honest, I think if a recipe calls for saffron, you're probably better to omit that if you haven't got it than replace it with something else. However, you could, depending on your flavour um, preferences, you could either use orange blossom or orange water, or, or you could use rose essence as well very in a very very small um kind of quantities but you would almost get that sweet floral um flavor from those that you would get from saffron but it wouldn't be the same dish um it would be altogether different so it's certainly it sounds like it's a unique spice that really can't be replicated and perhaps this is why you know it's it's so sort of special and important um because really there's nothing else that compares to it and it's also the way it's harvested. So um, in terms of saffron, every single strand is handpicked. There is, you know, no other, there is nothing else that is um, harvested in that way. Every strand is delicately picked because to do it any other way will compromise um, the strands. So that's why it's, it's worth more pound for, or gram for gram than gold. Um, and it's the most expensive spice in the world. But they're the reasons for that. Yeah, yeah, amazing, because spices in history have been worth so much historically. Um, most of them now are worth, you know, pence. And every time I go to the supermarket and I, I look at the spice, I always think, gosh, you know, if you look back in history, you know, thousands and thousands of, of men lost their lives over spices and the trading and the wars that they created. <clears throat> None of them have really retained that sort of... Um, you know, uh, rare commodity status now, actually, with the exception, I think, of saffron, which is still very, very expensive. Yeah, saffron and vanilla. I think vanilla is the second most expensive um, spice in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So, um, basically, have you got any other top tips for someone who might be trying to experiment with Persian cooking for the 
first time, presumably to buy your book when it's ready. Um, and <laughs> yes, uh, and we'll let everybody know about that. But any top tips? Sort of, I was thinking that perhaps nuts are readily used. Is that am I wrong? Pistachios and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Pistachios, walnuts. Um, and almonds are readily used um, in Persian cooking. Again, they're used in sweet and savoury. Um, baklava is um, some something that uh, we eat kind of, we don't really have puddings, I would say, like English do. Um, we don't have the kind of apple pie and custard um, or, or, or really hearty sponge cakes with custard and things like that. We have sweets, so we have baklava, we have sugared candies um, or sugared almonds. Um, baklava is something that I make at a lot of my supper clubs. I actually serve mine hot um, with a hot chocolate sauce um, on it as well. So that, again, it's so easy to do. And I think the whole thing with Persian cooking, and one of the reasons I set out to write the book was because I wanted to demystify it. Whereas it does take a lot of time, we use very few ingredients, and we, it just, it's very, very simple, you know, really, when you think about it. In terms of baklava, I use um, pistachios and almonds predominantly in my baklava. I use phyllo pastry, blocks of butter, sugar, water, um, a little bit of honey, and either rose or orange blossom syrup. And that is it. It's a case of layering, drizzling the syrup, cooking, and it's done. And people, I think, look at it and think, goodness, how did you make that? That looks really complicated. But it isn't. And most Persian food is like that, where you look at something and you think, that looks beautiful, that tastes nice. You just have to have a bit of patience, I think, you know, more often than not. And with, um, and it's also understanding how to use the spices. So the one thing that frustrates me more than anything is watching chefs throw a pinch of saffron in at the end of their cooking because there's no point. You've just completely wasted that spice. You'll have no flavour from the saffron. Why did you do it? That you're not you're not getting anything out of it. The only way to extract the flavour out of saffron, and my grandmother um, used to do this, my dad taught me, is to put the saffron strands into a little pot with a teaspoon of sugar and then grind it. And you grind it into kind of a red dust. And the sugar, the coarseness of the sugar breaks down the fibres in the saffron. So you get the maximum flavour out of that strand. So instead of using three strands, you need to use half a strand or one. God. You would then steep it in hot water, like a tablespoon of hot water, or depending on what I'm cooking it, I do a saffron cake, so I steep that in a tablespoon of rose water. The flavour and the colour that comes out of that is incredible. It's so yellow, so vibrant, and it's been used properly, and then you can put it in um, at the end of your cooking if you've used it that way, and it works beautifully. Just throwing a strand in at the end of, <laughs> in a dish at the end of it isn't going to do anything for it, unfortunately. Well, that's really, really useful to know because I think people, certainly myself anyway, I've never had any sort of <clears throat> lessons about how to use saffron and I didn't know fully about that technique either. So um, that's really, really helpful for people. And people just don't know. So it sounds like your book and the techniques and all the things that are in it would be really, really helpful for people learning about saffron and Persian cookery. Thank you. Yes. So... Um, We've obviously mentioned the book, that's going to be available soon and we'll let people know. Um, you also share lots of recipes online, so you can tell us about your website and what's on there a little bit and signpost people to that. 
Yeah. So my website is um, mylittlepersiankitchen.com. Um, I have 75 recipes live on there. Um, there's a little bit of an introduction about myself, why I started on this journey. There's a contact form as well if anyone wanted to contact me. Um, I've done a few private events recently. Um, I actually, one of the private events I did was local and a lady contacted me because it was her husband's 50th birthday and she wanted me to do a dinner party for them. So I, I went to meet her. I took some um, some tasting samples along and it turned out that a Persian was um, her husband was Persian. So I was really nervous at that point <laughs> because cooking <laughs> for a fellow Persian was, um, was really nerve-wracking. But he said when he came into the house that evening that it reminded him of his childhood, the smells. So that was wonderful. So I do do private events, birthday parties, weddings, um, and then again my supper club. So I will be returning to Alderford Lake this year as soon as we are able to um, re reopen. I am going to um, uh, Ginger and Pickles for four events this year. And I've also joined a collaboration with Perry's Field to Fork. Um, and they are an amazing artisan butchery and cookery school. The reason I actually agreed to join Perry's as a tutor, um, and we're running four Persian cooking classes this year. Uh, one of them was supposed to be the 3rd of May, um, but obviously we're also in lockdown by then, so we're moving that date. However, the reason I chose them is because they are their, their food miles are less than three miles. They have an on-site abattoir. And their ethics and their warmth and kindness was just wonderful. And it's exactly what I try to emulate within my um, supper clubs. So they were the perfect partner, really, and their facility is wonderful. So the cooking school um, courses will be going live on my website as soon as we've got the dates kind of set for those as well. Um, another project that I'm working on in the background is I want to set up um, a charity for teaching underprivileged children how to cook in the school holidays and um, kind of around their curriculum elements. So there's a few little kind of irons in the fire at the moment, but I do tend to update my website with any news of kind of what's going on and dates and events as well. And you'll find recipes on, on that website as well. Great. And I believe or hope that you're going to be coming along to do a demo at the Ginger and Spice Festival in September. Absolutely. Can't wait. So um, fingers crossed that, all these events and activities can go ahead um, and so your website for those that want to find it is mylittlepersiankitchen.com and if someone wants to email you your email address is mylittlepersiankitchen my, my at gmail.com that's great well thank you so much for being our wonderful guest on the Spice Order podcast it's been fascinating hearing all about the um the spices particularly the saffron and you know your whole setup and your journey and how you're connecting local people through persian food it's really really wonderful and we'll definitely be joining one of your pop-ups um at some time soon so thank you very much rebecca Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Julia. I've loved hearing how hospitality is at the heart of Rebecca's impetus for sharing her passion for all things Persian. It's always great to connect in with others who want to collaborate in sharing the love of spice. And long may that continue. This recipe is for Sholazad, which is a dairy-free saffron rice pudding. Sholazad means little bowls of yellow fire.
It's my absolute favourite all-time sweet. And as a treat, if I was feeling poorly or for my birthday, my dad always used to make it for me when I was a little girl. It does take a few hours, but the end result is wonderful. And it's reasonably cheap to make if your pantry stocked with spices. As just one cup of rice makes so much, you could make it for a dinner party and still have leftovers to enjoy over the next few days. I absolutely love eating this straight from the fridge, ice cold, with a sprinkling of cinnamon, and I still do. It is my ultimate secret indulgence. The ingredients you need to make this dessert are one cup of basmati rice, six cups of water, three cups of sugar, a third of a cup of rose water, and half a teaspoon of saffron threads. So to make this, you first need to make the saffron water. And to do this, I put as a half a teaspoon of saffron threads into a little um, into a little bowl, add in a teaspoon of sugar and then add in the rose water. Grind it all and that will give you a really nice yellow liquid. Set that aside. You would then put the rice into a sieve and wash it until it runs clear and all starchy cloudiness goes. At this point, add the rice to a good sized strong bottom pan and add the water in. Bring to a boil and skim off all the rising foam. That gets rid of all of the impurities. You would then turn down the heat and just simmer away with the lid on for around about an hour. Stir it occasionally to ensure that it doesn't stick to the bottom of the pan. If the water's all absorbed, just add a little bit more water in. After an hour's gone, add the sugar and saffron liquid and cook for a further 20 minutes. By this point, the rice should be soft and barely any liquid left. If not, just cook it for a little longer. When the top becomes creamy, it's done. Just add the rose water in before you remove from the heat, spoon into bowls and cool into the fridge. When cool, decorate with cinnamon powder and pistachio slithers. I hope you enjoy this. You've been listening to The Spice Larder a brand new podcast brought to you by the Ginger and Spice Festival. Thanks to everyone who took part in and helped produce this podcast. And if you don't know who we are, go to the About Us page via the website gingerandspicefest.co.uk. So you don't miss a show, subscribe to our podcast today. And if you like what you've heard, consider giving us a review via Apple or Google Podcasts as this really helps others find us. We regularly post news, features, recipes and competitions via our monthly e-bulletin. Sign up now by visiting our website homepage or emailing us at gingerandspicefest at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in to next month's edition of the Spice Larder podcast and until then, happy spicing. Spicing.